the word of God from Ephesians 2. From death to life. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. We good here? Good. All right. That text was from Ephesians chapter 2, and if you want to use one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 1036, or I would encourage you to turn on your device or open your Bible to Ephesians 2, because we're going to be referring to it uh, quite a lot this morning. <clears throat> on the church calendar, this Sunday, the last Sunday in October, is set aside as Reformation Sunday, and briefly, this is a way for the church to mark a very important event in the history of the Protestant Church. In the year 1517, on October the 31st, a German priest named Martin Luther posted a public written protest against the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And because of this new invention called the printing press, this protest was redistributed across Europe like a wildfire to start a reformation of the church. And here at Sojourn, we embrace the five solas or alones of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Today, we're going to be focusing on one of those, grace alone, from the text that Courtney read for us. This doctrine says that we are saved through grace alone, not through the act of purchasing forgiveness for sins or any act of goodness on our part. So let's jump in. Imagine yourself in a time and place in history where there's widespread, <clears throat> widespread poverty, war, injustice, you have no financial resources. The children of your only sister are starving. So you steal some bread to feed them. You're apprehended by the authorities, jailed, and wind up spending 19 years in a brutal prison. 
when you're released, you're required to carry a document with you that labels you as an ex-convict, a thief, an outcast. However, one night you seek rest in the home of a friendly priest. This priest has some valuables in his home. You steal some of those valuables, the silverware, sneak away in the middle of the night, but are apprehended by the police with those suspicious items, dragged back to the priest, stolen evidence, still in your possession. How would you feel about your predicament? You might be self-aware all of a sudden. You're thinking, I've already suffered years in prison. I know what I have to look forward to. And as a repeat offender, you will probably die in prison. You might feel bitter and oppressed. It's a system where it's impossible to remove the stigma of your past, to have a new life. And you may even feel guilty because deep down you know you were shown kindness and you sinned against that kindness. You may feel hopeless and helpless. You're out of options. There's no one to speak up for you. So maybe you've had some of those emotions in your life this week. Your life just hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. Opportunities missed or never offered. Relationships damaged due to your behavior or someone else's behavior. Pain of past failures, guilt over your sin, self-aware, bitter, oppressed, guilty, hopeless, and helpless. So how do we respond to these emotions? How have you responded to them in the past? Things aren't like they should be. Maybe you decide, I'm just going to ignore it. That's one way to cope, is just not think about the bad. Distract yourself with other things. Maybe you want to compare yourself with others. I know I've not done right, but look at them. You may even come to a point of despair and say, there's no hope. Things have turned out terribly. There is, there's nothing left. Well, fortunately, our story doesn't end where I brought you to, and we're going to pick it up later with some unbelievably good news. According to God's word, there's a reason that we experience these emotions. So let's look at that. Verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. So there's a classic movie, The Princess Bride. Lots of good quotes from that, from that movie. There's a strange character in this movie called Miracle Max. One of the main characters in this movie is killed in battle. He's taken to Miracle Max, who claims he can do some amazing things. Miracle Max examines him, and he says, well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. 
There's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, there's really only one thing you can do. And then he goes on to make a silly joke about rifling through their pockets for loose change. (laughs) So here in Ephesians 2, Paul's making a statement. We were all, all dead, spiritually in our sins. It means we're spiritually unresponsive, not capable of doing things to please God. And even our good deeds are tainted with sin. Let me give you an example of how this happens. I'll give you, I can do this because it's my example. <laughs> several, years, several years ago, I was getting off the exit ramp of the interstate and there was a, it was a cold day. There was a young man standing over here with a sign needing some help. And he had his hands stuck in his pocket, so I knew he was cold. And I happened to have a, a lightweight, thin jacket there in the seat next to me that I had got at a thrift store for $5. Um, so I pulled over to the side, and I waved him over to the car window, and I said, hey, you, you have a jacket? He said, no. I said, well, here, you can have this jacket. He said, oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's too big for him. Any, he, put it on he was very thankful so I rode the window up as a someone who follows Jesus Christ as a saved Christian my first thought was Brenda would be so proud of me not thank you God that I had this jacket to give but my first thought was pride isn't that astonishing As a believer, I did have the, right, the power to, to praise God and to, to not be prideful in that situation. But as an unbeliever, the Bible says we're not even able to please God. Even with our good deeds, they're tainted with sin. It's kind of like human beings can't hear a dog whistle. We're not capable of hearing it. The sound is really there. It's just not within our ability to hear it. Now, there are some in this room who became spiritually alive at such a young age, they don't remember what it was like to not be spiritually uh, responsive to God. And honestly, we pray that that would be true of all of our children. As we dedicate them, we pray, save them at a very young age, Lord. And there's others of you here who do remember when, before you trusted Christ, You had no desire for the things of Jesus, the God of God, the Bible, being around Christians. You might have even hated these things. Pastor Justin Dieter wrote this for a sermon recently. We can do nothing to alleviate our spiritual deadness, no more than a corpse can get out of the casket to go for a walk. We simply do not have the ability within ourselves to solve our spiritual problems. No doctor, no therapist, no pastor can fix your foundational problem. You can't muster up enough courage, enough wisdom, enough discipline to overcome your spiritual deadness. We must see that we are helpless before a holy God and only he has the power to resurrect our dead hearts. The text here, the mountain of evidence, just keeps piling up on us. 
Look again at the text. It says we're spiritually dead, controlled by demonic forces that leads us to disobedience as we go about enslaved to our flesh. Basically, that means that we can be manipulated by evil even when we don't intend to. We're rotten down to our nature, and we are rightfully deserving of God's judgment. There's nothing we can do about it. We are lifeless corpses, dead in our trespasses and sins. Everybody okay? Anybody need a break? This is a lot. One of the reformers, John Calvin, observed, we never become properly conscious of how much we owe to Christ until we've been reminded of how awful our condition was when we were still outside of him. Nick used some of the New City Catechism uh, in the profession of faith, and I'm going to use those uh, this morning. Number 16 says, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. This is our situation as sinners. So child of God, new creation, appreciate who you were. Even if you were too young to remember it, it's not who you are now. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet placed your trust in Christ, you might identify with the words in the text. Walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, and lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh and thoughts. So I would say that being self-aware is the first step towards salvation. But now the text is going to give us some incredible hope. Our salvation by grace. Why did God save us? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you're saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So it's kind of a running joke around here that I don't write in my Bible. Anybody heard that? Yeah. But if I did, and I don't, but if I did, those two words, but God, I would circle, highlight, make glow everywhere it's found in Scripture, especially right here. But God, it was a bad picture before this. These two words change everything. Paul writes that God is acting in alignment with his character when he does this, when he saves us. He's rich in mercy, not in short supply. What is mercy? It's God's freedom to show compassionate pity on his enemies, sparing them from his judgment. It's God withholding the punishment we deserve. 
And additionally, he did this because of his great love. Talk about piling it on. He doesn't rescue us because he needs us or because there's anything in us worth saving. He's moved by his own love and in affection for us, he has acted kindly towards us. And in case you've already forgotten, Paul reminds us that at the time God cast his love on us, we were dead in trespasses. Other verses in the New Testament tell us that we were even God's enemy. What news this is, but God, and it gets even better. Hold on. Verses tell us he made us alive with Christ. We had no pulse spiritually. Now we have a vigorous, beating heart who desires the things of God. Second, he raised us up. John Piper gives a great description of this. Before conversion, it's as though we had been kidnapped and brainwashed and made to think that we were really citizens of an enemy territory. And then the king's people find you, they shock you out of your stupor, and you suddenly realize that what the enemy has to offer would never satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Your heart is now in the homeland. But the king says, stay for now, and though it may be dangerous, live like an alien in love with the homeland. And when you come home, bring as many with you as you can. Thirdly, then, he, then it says, he seated us with Christ. We have access to Jesus all the time. And at times we may feel such close communion with Jesus as if he is physically with us. And because he is seated, resting, after completing our salvation on the cross, we too can rest and not have to strive for salvation. We've already received all of it. There's nothing else. As we say, this is the good news of the gospel. Rest in it and be at peace. Now, verses 8 and 9 are some of the most important words of Scripture in the Bible. These two verses were cited over and over again during the years of the Protestant Reformation four and five hundred years ago. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. By grace alone, through faith, not works. So we've talked about mercy a little bit. Let's talk about grace. What's grace? Mercy now is something, not getting something that's undesirable that you deserve. Grace flips that over, and it gives you something very desirable that you don't deserve. You have no way of earning and no way to, of deserving. Jack Miller states it this way, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Cheer up. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. Verse 9, Paul writes that we have been saved by grace, not by works. So let's look at that angle. What are works? We can identify that what works are, then we can say this is work, so everything else would be grace, right? So here's a list I put together just for some various sources. These would be works that don't save us. Effort, showing up. Achievement, participating, 
penance, giving money, missionary work, being a part of your church's denomination, having special knowledge, having education, having reached a certain age, having the right gender, ethnic, or cultural background, being rich, being poor, being beautiful or plain, married, single, having titles or positions, doing good deeds, giving sacrifices, religious ceremonies or rituals, being morally good, being talented, knowing the right language. Or maybe there's some things that we don't do. We don't do drugs, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, overeat, misuse our body. So if God is saying, I've saved you not because of those things, what's left? Nothing. There's nothing we can do or not do. Ephesians 1.9, the chapter prior to this, even says that in the King James Version, God saved us according to his good pleasure. That's grace. There's nothing you or I could do that would make God say, I'll save her because she has potential. Or I'll save him because he is so disciplined to not do the things he shouldn't do. Grace is unearned. If you can't earn it, then you can't unearn it. And you can't, certainly can't give it back. So to our friends in this room who have not yet experienced this grace, you can. The fact that you're even in this room now is a sign that you're not beyond the reach of saving. Turn from your sins. Place your hope in Christ today and know the mercy and grace of God. So my Christian friend, how do you respond to this? With worship, deep gratitude and humility. Tell others about it. Show grace to others because you've been shown grace. Keep in mind what Jonathan Edwards said. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Invite others to sing about God's grace with you. Remind yourself daily that you're a loved child of God. The New City Catechism, and we've already done this one this morning. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? No. Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. So why does God do this? Why does he make us alive, raise us, seat us with Christ? Why does he save us by his grace? Look back at your text. For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. It's important we get the order right. God saves us, then we do good works. Our service, what do we do now? Verse 10, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of us, ahead of time for us to do. There's a cell phone app you might have heard of called If This Then That that it automates actions. Here's a couple of popular ones. Uh, when the International Space Station is over my house, send me a notification. So, unbelievably, it can happen in our phones. 
It can track the International Space Station, notify you when it's over your house. It can go out, look up, and see it. A more practical one that it will notify you, if it's going to rain today, remind me to grab my umbrella. Pretty handy. If one action happens, another action happens. Here's a theological if this, then that. God saved us, we do good works. Pretty simple. And we've already noted down that we don't do good works to earn salvation. It's impossible. No, we, we do good works from the incredible joy, gratitude we should feel at what God has done for us. We do, let's do something for him. Let's obey him more. Let's trust him more. Let's see where he's already working and join him in that. Let's feed and clothe the needy, serve our neighbor, make our communities better, and on and on. Do you notice in the, in the text, God has already laid out opportunities for us, prepared ahead of time. So look around, jump in, serve him. There's a, there's a new city catechism question and answer for this. Number 34. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? Yes. So that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, and so that by our godly behavior, others may be won to Christ. So wrapping up, when we started today, I had you imagine yourself in the place of a hopeless, helpless, ex-convent, unquestionably guilty of sinning against someone who had shown him kindness. Can you picture yourself, dirty, disheveled, looking into the eyes of this kind priest who had shown you kindness, expecting to hear, I condemn him. We left you there like we were at the verses 1 through 3, before the words, but God. The story I invited you to imagine yourself in is, of course, the story of one of Victor Hugo's characters in Les Miserables. His name was Jean Valjean. He had stolen silver from the priest who had treated him with such kindness, and he stands there before this priest with a policeman guarding him, stolen merchandise on hand. John expects to hear the condemnation of the priest, and then the priest speaks from the book. Ah, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry those away with your forks and spoons? Jean Valjean opened his eyes wide and stared at the venerable bishop with an expression which no human tongue can render any account of. Monseigneur, said the policeman, so what this man said is true then? We came across him. He was walking like a man who is running away. We stopped him to look into the matter. He had this silver. I, and he told you, interrupted the priest with a smile, that it had been given to him by a kind old fellow of a priest with whom he had passed the night. I see how the matter stands. And you've brought him back here. It's a mistake. In that case, replied the police, we can let him go? Certainly, replied the bishop. The policeman released Jean Valjean, who recoiled 
Is it true that I'm to be released, he said in an almost inarticulate voice, and as though he were talking in his sleep. Yes, you're released. Don't you understand, said one of the policemen. My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. He took the two silver candlesticks and brought them to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and with a bewildered air. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it's not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It's never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. Friends, this is grace. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's a good one. Remember the if this, then that we talked about? Listen a little bit further. The bishop drew near to Jean Valjean and said in a low voice, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It's your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Sojourn, friends, in a parallel way, Jesus Christ has purchased to God all who repent of their sins and trust in him. He has reclaimed our souls from sin, self, society, and Satan, and he's given us to his Father, who then becomes our Father. So then know God's grace. Embrace it. Worship the God who chose you, the Son who paid for you, and the Spirit who brought you to life. We're saved from our sins by God's grace alone to respond in joyful service. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. May we recognize daily how you love us. And may that prompt us to love you and to serve you. Amen.